Tyler Hamilton. Welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Hey, thanks, Anthony. Good to see you. It's a pleasure. How you been doing? Been good, been good. Been riding the bike, staying fit, a lot of podcasting, not as much cycling as I'd like. Busy, same story as everyone has. You you doing good? You riding the bike much? I'm here in Missoula, Montana. It's, we got a pretty long winter and uh, I'm also stayed home down this year, so it's uh, not much riding. A little bit of running when I can and uh, get some yoga and... But yeah, I'll get out this spring. I'll start to get out this spring, yeah. Tyler, but I'm, you know, we, I'm, I'm a dad now, and yeah, kind of get the dad lot going. I don't think yep. we've ever talked about all the way back to the beginning of your journey. How did you make the transition from racing in the US to coming across to Europe? Um, how did I make the transition? Yeah, how did, how did it happen for you? Yeah, uh, for us, for, you know, I was on the... Uh, Let's see. The fir- my first year as a pro was in uh, 1995. It was with a team called Montgomery Bell. It was the original postal team, just under a different title sponsor. Um, it was led by this guy named uh, Eddie Borisevich, Eddie B. Uh, he uh, lived here. St- was a you know American, but he came over from Poland way back when, and he, he was a real uh, influence. Just a lot of a lot of, a lot of riders in the in the 80s and early 90s for sure. He was our director and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, we raced primarily, uh, primarily in the U S but maybe about like 20 to 30% of the time over, over in Europe. We did some trips over there, tour of Poland. Uh, we did the, what was it? The Teleflex tour in, uh, in Holland. I think it's under a different name now. Yeah. I was fortunate enough to win that one. And then, uh, you know, the next year turned into, uh, we got a new title sponsor. We brought in, a. Mark Gorski is the manager of the team, and he uh, brought in the, the Postal Service in 90, 1996. Um, and again, we were like a domestic team racing probably 60, 70% of the time in the United States. And then we jump over to Europe in 96. We did, uh, what was it, the Tour of Switzerland. That was super hard. Uh, a few other races, yeah. Uh, we did, the, I think it was a Tour of Portugal, which was back then, I think it was like 14 days. Uh, so yeah, we did a lot of tough racing. Tough racing. And then the following year, 1997, you know, Postal came in with a, or at the end of the 96 season, they, they up basically up the budget for the 97 season. And then all of a sudden we were, were basically a European based team, you know. I, I remember a lot, a lot of, of us full time. A lot of us were really green, really green. So we, we, you know, brought in a lot of talent, you know. I mean, let's say that's when George Hincapie came to the team. That's when, uh, Adriano Baffi came to the team. That, I think that's the year Ekimov came to the team. Yeah, he came in 1997, I believe. Yeah. Uh, J.C. Robon, French guy, Pascal Duramay, another Frenchman. Uh, Peter Miner from Denmark. So, yeah, we became, from 96 to 97, we became kind of like a, an international team. Yeah. I remember when I was full-time riding the bike, Tyler, I... I was riding the bike full time, but if I think back to my mindset then, I never thought I was going to be a legit pro cyclist like you were. That wasn't my yeah. mindset. My mindset was kind of more like a student who's gone on a gap year. I was like, okay, I know I'm not good enough to race at world tour level. So I'm going to see, can I knock two, three years out of traveling around with somebody else paying for it and get to ride my bike can you remember if you circle back all the way to the beginning of this professional journey of yours in cycling, 
what was your mindset like? Were you, uh, I think to coin it, a Tim, a Tony Robbins phrase, where he, he has this idea of some people have to succeed no matter what, that they're going to burn the boats, that I'm going to do whatever it takes to be successful in this chosen career. Give us a little peek into your mind back then. Yeah, no, I mean, I was just, I was just having fun with it. I was having fun with it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, originally I was a ski race, ski racer, downhill ski racer. That was my sport. That was my true love. Uh, cycling. I started cycling just to keep my legs in shape for the for the winter time. You know, um, yeah, I had an accident my sophomore year at University of Colorado. I think it was in nineteen ninety one or nineteen ninety two. I broke my back when I was in. I was in bed for like six, eight weeks. And, you know, when I got out of bed, they said I could ride a road bike. And, you know, I'd been doing a little bit before that. And I just really got into it. I couldn't ski race that winter. It was the first time, you know, not on ski since I was, you know, probably three years old. And, uh, but I kind of got out a lot of anxiety out on the roads outside of Boulder. And little did I know, Boulder is a huge, huge cycling town, you know, way bigger than a ski town for sure. And, uh, yeah, I just ran into all sorts of folks who were, you know, top amateurs or professionals. And uh, it was a great place to basically learn how to ride a bike and, and learn the, the ins and outs of bike racing, for sure. So I felt very lucky to be there uh, as I was kind of learning about bike racing. Yeah, I joined the CU cycling team, the University of Colorado cycling team. Won the national championship in 1993 and then... That kind of got me a spot on the U.S. national team for 94, and then I was professional in 95. So it happened really fast. I was really green. I was definitely a really green professional. You know, even in my first tour in 97, I was like, you know, I had a little bit of the, uh, you know, I shouldn't be here. Imposter syndrome. Yeah, for sure. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, maybe I should have been, you know. I mean, I was really new, really still new at the sport, you know. Just some of the simple things I was still pretty green at. What was your first impressions of the bunch yeah. when you went over to Europe? Was it, was doping a conversation you were aware of in the bunch when you went over initially? Uh, when I went over initially, like in the early years when I was on basically in 95, 96, I was basically on a domestic team that would kind of, you know, jump over the pond and jump in a few races. Uh, you know, I'd read, you know, this is way before the internet. So I'd read about, doping, you know, a little bit, a magazine in the United States called Velo News. You know, every once in a while, there'd be a small little blurb, usually in the back of the magazine. You know, maybe something that happened, but usually not, but not very frequently. Every once in a while, you read about it. Uh, but the kind of going on this, the, the word of the street, I guess, in the state, in the States was like, you know, there wasn't doping in the States, but there was possibly doping at the highest, highest level of the sport over in Europe. But, you know, I didn't know. I didn't know. I mean, there was kind of rumor about that. But I was, I didn't know. I was young and green and wide-eyed. And did I notice a difference going from the United States racing in the U.S. to racing in Europe? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm really excited to announce our show sponsor today is Silka. For those of you who might not know, Silka offers best-in-the-game bike accessories like tools, pumps, plus all your everyday bike maintenance kit like chain wax and even sealant. What sets Silka apart is their commitment to quality, beauty and craftsmanship. Trust me, these products are built to last. I've been replacing my track pump probably on average every two years, but my dad has had a Silka track pump since I can remember 
and it's still going perfectly strong, almost without a blemish on it. So if you want to spoil yourself or maybe you want to treat one of your cycling friends, they have so many amazing products over on the Silco website. There's torque wrench sets, bike bags, 3D printed bike computer mounts and loads of other really cool pieces all over there. And as a Roadman listener, you can get 13% off all Silca products. Just use the code ROADMAN13 at checkout. Not only does this get you a fantastic deal, but it also lets Silca know that sponsoring this podcast is valuable. Whether you're shopping for a gift or you're treating yourself, Silca has something for every cyclist who hates the throwaway culture and loves quality. So check them out and don't forget to use the code ROADMAN13 at checkout. The details are in the description below. From Uh, the outside looking in at the US Postal, it looked a lot of fun. It looked like this sort of low budget team of American kids who didn't really know what they were doing that much going over to Europe, breaking all the rules and mixing it up. Like, what was it? You're the bad news bears. What was the culture like inside the team? You asked about how we were treated. You definitely... I wouldn't say we were like welcomed with like open arms, you know, I don't, you know, the bunch definitely gave us some grief and, you know, you know, a little bit of that, uh, I get maybe a little bit of bullying, you know, for sure. Uh, we are unproven team and, you know, yeah, we had all sorts of strange equipment too. And, you know, that they like to have fun with that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think we, I think we proved them wrong, you know, over time. But I do remember, I think uh, Ekimov took the lead in the prologue or something. I think it was like a race that they used to have called the Mini Libre. I, I believe it was that stage race. And he had the lead and they were like, we were defending the lead in the early stages, not flatter stages. And I re- remember the group kind of having fun with us, giving us some, giving us some, uh, just some, some jabbing, you know. <laughs> but yeah, it's all part of it. It's all part of it, you know. But what was the culture like inside Postal? Like, was it good fun on the team bus? Was there, was it a good laugh? Was it a good group to be around? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, a lot of fun. I don't know. Yeah, we got, I mean, we got guys like George, we had guys like Frankie Andreo, who's like the older statesman. We had, you know, Lance, we had young guys like Christian Vanneveld. And then we had the European guys and, you know, we had early on Adrian Obafi, you know, he was, he was a, you know, just a, well-respected rider back in what was that 1997 yeah he'd done a lot of big things he'd won tour stages like before that so uh to have him on our team was huge having akimov on our team was huge you know i remember watching him <clears throat> in the tour like it was called the tour to trump it was it eventually turned into the tour de pont which it, uh raced on the uh, eastern seaboard of the united states i remember watching him when i was in high school going down to boston to watch the final stage and seeing guys like Ekimov, Greg Lamont, who else? Like Bobby Julik. Yeah. When I was just, just a kid. It was like a golden era for US cycling. It was just some good years. Yeah. We had some good talent. You know, we have a lot of good talent now. Tons of good talent now. Yeah. I'd say How maybe you, even better. What's a big kind of buzz in corporate culture? And I know you're moving into the corporate world at the moment. Everything's about culture. What influence does one person have on culture? Like when you look at Armstrong's approach to training, nutrition, competition, is that something that sets the tone culturally for the rest of the team to follow? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, I mean, he, he was super focused. He, he knew what he wanted. 
uh, he was driven, you know, beyond belief. I, you know, I, I thought I trained really hard until I started training with him. What was that? What year was that? I started training with him a lot in like the year 2000. Yeah. A lot, a lot. And, uh, that's when I realized, you know, I hadn't been training hard enough in the years before. Yeah. Very, very disciplined. Yeah. Yeah. Hard. I, yeah, that was one of the hardest years of my life, probably in the year 2000. Yeah. Outside of Nice, France, riding in those hills, north, north of Nice is up, down, up, down all day long. Yeah. Can you remember when you uh, first became... Fun. Yeah, I learned a lot. Yeah. Can you remember when What's you first that? became aware of the Open inside the team? Uh, uh, that was in 1997. And were you shocked? Yeah. Or what was your reaction to it? Yeah, I mean, I was surprised, but... But then, I, you know, I also, over the years, had heard those rumors, so... Yeah, I was. Well, was I shocked that it was on my team? Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I was. And then uh, I, I think the first time I kind of realized it was, or started to kind of maybe scratch my head, was in, you know, that you'd finish a, <clears throat> a race and then riders would be heading to the airport and heading home, you know, before the next time they'd kind of get together with a team. Then certain riders on the team were getting handed like little, like kind of like a white little like lunch bag. Uh, yeah. I didn't know it was in them, but, uh, you know, kind of made me scratch my head. Well, you know, what are they getting here? And, he, <clears throat> and why wasn't I getting one? You know. Does that create a little yeah, bit of a division yeah. between the kind of the cool kids and the other kids that are excluded, where you have a split team almost with the dopers getting their little lunch bag ah. and then the other guys kind of a little bit in the dark as to what's going on? Yeah, I mean, that's the way it was then, you know, on on the 97 postal team. It was kind of like, at least in the springtime, it felt like the it was sort of like the A team and the B team, for sure. And you know, we had a, I think we had uh, that year where they were like 21, 23 riders on the team. You know, we were hoping to get selected for the for the Tour de France as a wild card. You know, back then they wrote nine guys in the tour, and uh, so yeah, eventually, you know, I knew I had to I knew I wanted to make the tour team. And eventually, it, eventually, the doping was uh, was uh, introduced to me. Yeah. So in, in that period before doping's introduced to you, do you have like almost a ethical dilemma in the period after you become aware of doping, but before you take before you cross the line and take testosterone for the first time? Do you have this period where you're internally debating if this is a good idea or a bad idea, weighing up the pros and cons, or how does that? Kind of, I wasn't debating it. I didn't debate it. I didn't debate it at all until like it was presented to me. You know, in my hotel room. I think it was after the yeah. It was after a stage race in in Spain in the springtime. Yeah, who, who and that's when a doctor came into my room and it talked to me about you know what it was like to be like professional, you know, and, and that I could take care of my body better than I was, and, you know taking this little red testosterone pill and that's kind of how it started, you know? Uh, and yeah, you're not, it's, he said, you know, he said it wasn't doping. It's, it's for your health. That's what I remember him saying. And then I remember taking it and just, you know, just kind of wanted to not to rock the boat. Yeah. You take it. And then, you know, you think about the consequences later, I guess. Was this a team doctor? Yeah. And then slowly it, it slowly it grew, you know, the, the doping, it slowly grew. Yeah. You know, my first year, 
1997. Yeah, I dope. You know, very, very little, but I, that's when I started doping. And, and then you grew, got, you got more comfortable with it. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, I, then, you know, fast forward one year, we're in the middle of the Tour de France and, and that whole Festina affair blew up. And, and that's when things got, because before 1997, it was relatively open. Like teams were bringing it to the races, handing out deriders to take back home after, you know, to, to use for training. You know, by then 98 happened, the Festina Fair, everything went really like underground and everything was extremely dangerous after that. I don't think anyone knew how just, um, yeah, how dangerous what we were doing was, you know, what the consequences were. Yeah. And that's when it became very real. You know, one minute, one minute you're, you're one minute you're racing with, with somebody on Festina one day, the next, next, you know, that night you're watching him on TV in the, in handcuffs. That's crazy. In a French police station. So it was pretty, yeah, it was pretty eye opening. And that's when, you know, everything definitely went underground for sure. Well, look back at that doctor, Tyler, and the first time you doped, do you feel like that doctor, like there was a ethical breach, like he should have had your back more? Do you feel like, you know, do you have any hostility towards that situation that you were put in by him? I know you're an adult, but you're still in a highly pressurized situation as a young adult. He was just doing his job. That was part of being a doctor back then on a cycling team. And if he didn't do his job, somebody else would have for sure. So, you know, I, I've definitely forgiven him. I made, I made that choice. I was an adult at the time. I was a young adult at that time, but I, you know, I knew the difference between right and wrong. I don't, you know, yeah. He's been forgiven by me for a long time, for a long time. Yeah. That was my own. I knew, I knew the difference between right and wrong. As soon as I took that first red testosterone pill, I'd bother me. I'd have committee meetings at night. I call them committee meetings at night, you know, stare at the ceiling, usually between like two and three in the morning. And, you know, you think about the consequences, you think about, you know, it's a huge secret. You know, a lot of us were doing it and it was, like, how's this secret not going to come out? I was like petri- petrified of it, and and sure enough, it happened. It all happened, you know. But I, I, you know, I feel like it was time that the truth needed to come out. You know, I think it helped clean up the sport a lot. I think the sport's in a much better place today because of all of it, all of it. You know, is there a big leap from taking? Uh, I'm not to trivialize yeah. it from taking an EPO pill, which is just a, or sorry, yeah testosterone pill which is just like a small little red egg it's just like taking you know a vitamin to actually sure. putting an injection into your body and taking an epo injection yeah. does that feel like a big leap excuse the short interruption as you can see from the background i'm over in beautiful sunny girona but this isn't my reality normally i'm time crunched in dublin need to make the most of every single error that's why i heavily rely on my watt bike I love it and I recommend it to you because it just works. There's no 10 minute setup, no unfolding legs, banging my shins off stuff or wrestling to take a back greasy wheel off. Just jump on and it works. It's also compatible with all the major e-gaming platforms, connects instantly. If you're looking for an indoor trainer, I couldn't recommend it any higher. It's the last indoor trainer you're ever going to need. Head on over to whatbike.com and use the code ROADMAN10. That's ROADMAN10. T-E-N, and that's going to knock you 10% off your what bike today. Yeah, I mean, A, a it's a needle. It's going, you know, 
it's going on into your skin. Originally, we were doing it right under the skin, not into the vein. And I don't know, it just felt, it felt weird. It felt like another step up. It felt definitely like another step up or two steps up from taking an occasional red pill. There's obviously yeah. physical advantages to take in testosterone, EPO. But I think the part that we don't ever hear about is the mental and emotional strain. Did Can you share it? a little bit about how this double life affected your mental health, your relationships? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was it was really hard. It was really hard. You definitely had two lives. You know, you had this, yeah, you were known as a professional bike racer and you had this one side of you, and then you had this big, big, big secret, you know? Uh, you know, my wife knew about it at the time. That's it. That's it. A few of my teammates, it wasn't like you really t spoke about it, you know, at the dinner table there with a the team. But uh, yeah, a few teammates, my wife. But it, 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 I don't know. I grew up, I grew up, my parents definitely instilled in me that the difference, difference between right and wrong. Uh, and, you know, when you do make a wrong, which will happen, you know, you write the ship as quickly as possible and, you know, with your head held on and you do the right thing. Yeah, that, so it just bothered, it bothered me the whole time from the minute, from whatever, the spring of 1997, you know, until the end of my career. It was, yeah, it bugged me. It bugged me. Having that dual life, didn't like, yeah, you kind of, you had to have two faces. You had to have two faces. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and the whole, you know, and also like cycling is extremely selfish. Well, you have to be so focused on yourself, your health, this, that, weight, diet, enough rest, everything else gets pushed back, right? And all of that can wait till I'm retired. So it's just that extra pressure in the double life. I don't know. You know, I rolled up my sleeves and like, said, okay, this is how it has to be done. So it has to be done this way. So, okay. You know, so be it, you know, turn, turn my head a little bit and, and you know, put these feelings in the back of my head, but just keep pushing them back. Just do what you got to do. It's, this is the way the sport is right now. And so, so be it. So be it. You touched on the 1998 Festina affair from my understanding and people yeah. I've talked to who doped around the time. This is when doping change from something that was administered from the teams centrally two teams could no longer take the risk and now doping became something that each individual rider now was responsible for running their own mini program you guys had a, a system where i think it was armstrong's gardener if i remember it was motoman that was working talk to me about the, the change from it being team administered to these individual programs. Was that difficult to manage? Did you think about opting out of it at this point or was it just, I'm in? Yeah, I went from like team administered, like fully, like they were fully in charge to then, then basically like them pointing us in the right direction, you know, a little bit from the outside, but you need to take care of it yourself. Yeah. Uh, it, it changed a lot of things. Definitely. I mean, the stress level went up another notch for sure. I mean, yeah, you had to go pick it up sometimes wherever that was. And that was a pain, super big pain. Get, I get so nervous doing it, so nervous. You know, I didn't, I didn't have somebody to go do that for me. No, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't like it. It felt very, yeah, dirty, dirty. Yeah. When, when you had to go do that kind of stuff or, you know, later in my career when I was blood doping, like, I'm going to take these like secret flights over to Madrid to see this guy who freaked me out of Fuentes. Like, yeah, hated it, hated it. 
the blood doping became kind of a way to get around the EPO tests, if I remember. EPO tests, they started talking about the possibility yeah. to test for EPO at around 2000. Yeah, in the year 2000, they started talking about it. Uh, they talked about it maybe coming to the tour, but definitely in uh, for the Olympics. So, so yeah, before that, before that, there was no EPO test. You know, you, you could take it five minutes before a test and, you know, not a problem unfortunately but yeah so they, a test came out a test came out so all of a sudden uh you know the rules of taking epo via the doctor the team doctors they told you yet i mean taking less we were taking it instead of under the skin subcutaneously that put it into the vein smaller doses search straight into the vein would be in your system for less time the idea of an evolution of doping it's like it seems like it went from testosterone and then as it evolved it gets more severe, it gets more seedy, it gets more intrusive. So you go from testosterone to now having to inject yourself. You go from having to inject yourself under team supervision to now having to go to these kind of clinics to pick up produce yourself and do it at home. And then the EPO tests come in and it seems like there's another threshold or line crossed again because now you're having to fly and getting your blood taken out of you like a vampire and watching it get put back in. That just seems like... I've spoke to athletes on the podcasts and they talked about just that time you had to think when the blood was dripping back into you. That's a lot of self-reflection time in an era without being distracted by Twitter and TikTok on your phone. You're just sitting there thinking about the quality of your decision. That must have been really hard. Oh, brutal. Whether it was going in or coming out, you know. So same thing when you're taking or you know giving giving a bag of blood you're just sitting there and like yeah what am i doing like it's crazy it's crazy yeah but this all slowly happened this didn't happen overnight it was like little small steps and then you know year after year you get a little bit older and wiser you learn the system better and you learn okay this is this is what i need to do to compete like if not you know the other guys are doing this this is what i gotta do also so again like roll up the sleeves a little bit more and like just dig in a little bit harder, harder. And, you know, if you got your conscious, just push it in the back of your head. Is it a relief when you get caught or is it despair? Oh man, it was despair. Yeah. Life just crashed down really, you know, life crashed down, but probably one of the best things that that ever happened to me, really, if you could, if you go up to, you know, 30,000 feet for sure, for sure. But it was, the heart, heart, you know, from that moment till over, you know, that was 2004, September of 2004 when I had positive tests. Yeah. Just oh, over a, dec- a, de- oh, a decade of hard, tough, tough, decade of tough for sure. Yeah. But yeah, it needed, it needed to happen. You know, it, need, it needed to happen to one of us for sure. And, you know, the truth needed to come out. I fought it. I fought it. You know, made it come back. That, that didn't come, didn't go well. But you know what? I was committed to go to the grave with these secrets. Like, even though I got caught, you know, I kept my mouth shut. I thought I was doing the right thing. And yeah, when Jeff Davitsky, the you know, FBI agent, Jeff Davitsky, when he called me, uh, that was when things changed. And I basically had, you know, backed up and backed up. It was either to tell the truth or like, or jump. Basically, what do you yeah, mean? You say jump prison? Yeah, I was. 
No, like I or like basically I backed up and backed up and I was like at the edge of a cliff and it was either tell the truth or like or jump. You know, I was like, these are serious Alec, these serious stuff, you know. Ser- it was serious. I, you know, I knew a lot of stuff and and that the truth was it was it was a massive truth to tell. And you know, was, the biggest relief I probably ever had in in, in in at least one moment or one day or just in a in a few hours was probably standing in front of that the federal the grand jury you know in Los Angeles talking to them for like seven hours. That was probably the biggest relief. You know what? When I look at that period, Tyler, I can. I can excuse so much of it. I can put myself into that situation and I can be like, you know what? I actually don't think I would have made decisions that were any different. I, I think it's it's a difficult to judge from afar and say you would behave differently. And I think a lot of people would have taken the same choices you have. One thing that I really look at and I deplore from that era, specifically it's like Armstrong's behavior around Emma O'Reilly and the bullying and the trying to discredit her. That was just horrible to see. Was that hard to be a part of that whole circus that happened around the subpoenas and trying to, you know, him protest his innocence in that period? Yeah, that was a that was a hard time for me for sure. I, th- I think it was a hard time for him as well. Yeah, lots going on. Lots going on. Yeah, um, I don't. You know. Lance went through a lot of stuff in his, you know, younger life that I didn't know about till just really just a few years ago. He he was bullied himself a lot, you know, by his stepdad, and he went through a lot as a kid. I, you know, I didn't I didn't go through anything like that. Um, so after learning that, you know, it gave me a lot more like empathy towards Lance and maybe towards some of the some of the moves that he made. That I I know today that he he doesn't he he's apologetic for some of those things that he did, you know, but he, he didn't have the, you know, the best, the best childhood. He had some rough times for sure. And, and, and it gives me at least a little bit more of an understanding on how, how some of these things could have happened and, you know, how he maybe bulldozed a few people here, you know, not to say any of it was right, but it just makes me kind of understand and have a little empathy towards him for that. You still have a relationship with Lance? Oh man, I haven't talked to him in years, but you know, but uh, you know, I I uh, I support him. You know, I support the guy for sure. And just I don't I don't have any ill will towards him. I, you know, I've forgiven him myself. You know, I I like to see everyone like succeeding. All all my old teammates and competitors, like whoever, like yeah. I don't. I'm not rooting against anyone for sure, and Lance in, included. You know. Years ago, I couldn't, I would, wouldn't have been able to say that. That's for sure. But, but yeah, I mean, he's doing. I think he's doing some good things, and um, and it's it's good to see him still part of cycling a little bit. You know, uh, George, like uh, I saw your, I saw like the rec, like maybe like the recap or something with George, your podcast. That was really cool. I haven't talked to George in years, but it was really nice to hear his voice and just see him and hear how he's doing and hear about him talking about his son who's who's a you know a young bike racer in the junior ranks he's he's coming up really fast you know that that was awesome awesome seeing that but yeah you know there was a lot of hurt between all of us you know and you know there was no really book to to there was no book to you know how to profess your doping 101 
we all kind of had to figure it out ourselves. And, you know, some, we all told our truth, truths in other, other ways, all different kinds of ways. Something I talked to George about was those seven Tour de Frances that had Lance Armstrong's name on them. Does he still think he's the winner of all seven of those? I actually do. I think it's a impossible task to look at second place and give the award to him because I think second place doped. Third place, I think he doped. Fourth place, I think he doped. I don't know how far you have to go down that list to declare a winner the Tour de France. And it doesn't sit easy with me having no winner for seven Tour de France's. I think that Armstrong won those Tour de France's because anyone I talk to from that era always says to me, Armstrong won those Tour de France's. What do you think? I mean, they haven't, they haven't, right now it's just blank. So until they fill out spot, you know, it's just as names on it. All your experiences, you faced a range of reactions from mm-hmm. the public, from the media, from the cycling community. What was the most challenging mm-hmm. aspect of sharing your story? Oh, oh me. Uh, probably telling my family. I, you know, I've been lying to them. The whole, you know, like I kept a secret as tight as possible. You know, only the only those who had to know knew. You know, other than that, it was so. Yeah, tell my family for sure, for sure. You know, what was that conversation like? Oh, just yeah, it was pretty rough. Just because you know, I, I had to lie to them too, which stunk, really stunk. And um, yeah, I mean, I told them I kind of waited till the last minute, but it was like right before. That 60 Minutes interview aired. So it was, I don't know, I think it was like maybe 2012 or something, 11. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, it was hard, hard. You know, told my mom, dad, and my brother and sister all at the same time. That was hard. But yeah, there was a lot of rough, but you know, but they also forgave me pretty quick that, you know, I told them, when you tell the story from the very beginning to the very end, you know, a lot, a lot of people can understand how it might have happened. For sure, you know, the sport wasn't very well regulated in the in the '90s. That's for sure, you know. I mean, Andy Hampton said, like, I felt bad for those guys who were just starting out, and you know, he 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 and I were teammates in 1996. His last year as a as a professional, and I was just basically starting. And I think he secretly felt bad for us because he knew what we were getting into, or like about to dive into. I guess, so, yeah. I mean, not the best time in the world to yeah be a professional bike racer in at at the world tour level. Let's just put it that way. You know, I, I was having a good old time racing st- here in the states. You know, I was having a blast. What year did you get started, races, Tyler? Tons of races, tons of races, tons of we had tons of prize money, which was great. And then I don't know. Back then, I loved doing the crits, criteriums. You know, I was pretty good at them back then. But yeah. What, what year did you reckon the open started, Tyler? What's that? What year do you reckon the doping started? Le Mans thinks it was around 92. For the high octane stuff I'm talking about, your EPOs, testosterones. Oh, oh I heard it came out in like the late 80s. I heard like 89 or something. But I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Interesting. Uh, but yeah, other sorts of doping. They, they were doping in the 80s, 70s. Yeah. Yeah, they, they've been doping. Just different uh, stuff. I used, had a master's thesis for my uh, yeah. law degree. And I traced some of the origins of doping. Like mm-hmm. gladiators were doping back in the Coliseum, fighting each other back in the day. Anything for an edge. What a catch. 
Roadmen, you know how serious I take my goal setting. And I know how serious you take it too. So whether you're chasing fitness or lifestyle goals, and you're looking for a powerful ally to support you on this journey, look no further than Huel. Huel has become my secret weapon for when I don't have time to prepare a balanced meal. It means I get the nutrition I need without sacrificing time or taste. Plus, it stops me from reaching for the takeaway menu. I always throw a bottle of this banana into my backpack when I'm heading into the city, and it stops me eating junk convenience foods that don't support my training goals. It's handy, it's nutritious, it's 22 grams of protein. It's perfect for athletes that don't have time to cook or prepare food before a training session. It's convenient, nutritious fuel at your fingertips, ensuring you hit your daily fueling needs. Huel Ready to Drink has over 26 essential vitamins and minerals in every bottle, making sure you get 175 health benefits. Plus, it's made from amazing natural ingredients like sunflower seed, coconut, and more. And the best part, eight mouth-watering flavors. My favorite's the banana. That's what's in my backpack at the moment. You can get Huel direct to your home by going to huel.com forward slash roadman. That's huel, H-U-E-L dot com forward slash roadman. It's cutthroat. It's, it's, it's such a hard sport. That's the problem. So, so hard. Hardest sport in the world. For sure. And no one wants to dope. Like, the, just you have really good controls. We just need really, really good controls. So, like, it's not even a possibility. It's not even a thought. So, that's why it's really important. Not forget what happened and, like, let's, like, let's support all the anti-doping authorities. Let's, like, make sure they get enough funding, all that. So we can keep this sport clean and like and heading in the right path. And maybe cycling can be like a, a leader in the terms of term of like clean sport. You know, why not? Why not? We've already been we've been through it. So, you know, many different times, you know, because it's such a hard sport, yeah, people have been cutting corners, you know, like myself. What advice would you give to young athletes who are facing a similar moral dilemma than you did one you faced that day on the bed when the team doctor came in and said, hey, you're taking this for your health. What advice would you give them if you could whisper in their ear? I would just say, hey, I mean, at the very, very least, take some time to think about it before you just say yes. Like, you know, you don't have to people please. I people please and just like, yo, yes, sir. You know, oh, you've you've been working in this sport for the last 10 years. You've worked with big champions. Like you tell me to do that. Like you said, I'll sit, you know. I need to clap, I'll clap, like whatever. But no, take your time. Like these are big decisions. So like take a step back, think about it. And if you if you take a step back and think about it, you're going to make the right choice. You know, you're going to make the right choice, which is not doing it, staying clean. So t t take some time, take some time, go for a walk, do whatever you have to do. But like take some time and think about it. Think about what I went through. Think about what, you know, lots of us went through. Are we going to see you at a, a gravel race anywhere in the U.S. next year? Oh, I don't think. I mean, maybe on maybe on the sideline, yeah, cheer on people. Yeah, yeah. I still we still got, I still have a coaching business, and uh, so I still work with some athletes, and that's a lot of fun. Yeah, I go to a race every once in a while. My two stepsons they they race cross, they and they race mountain bikes. Yep. So I go to little races once in a while. It's fun. I'll pin a number on. Well, you and I can race. <laughs> we can race on the let's race on the wild Atlantic way when are you coming there in Ireland oh, I don't know you know I don't know it might be a few years I got a little guy now so bring him you know, maybe yeah with a little with a trailer I ride these days I ride with a trailer with a flag on the back 
<laughs> that's my life. That's my life. Tyler, it's it's great to see you doing so well. Great to see you looking so healthy, so happy, and so willing to share your story. Because I think unless we keep these stories relevant, unless we tell the new generation the missteps that we made, they're just going to be repeated again and again. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks, Anthony. Um, and, you know, it's really nice to see Jan Ulrich coming out of the woods and doing a lot better, right? And he wasn't that, he didn't get a whole lot of support for a long time. And, you know, he didn't start doping. He wasn't the first one to dope her. You know, he went through the ringer, through the ringer. It's, uh, it's really nice to see him doing better. It's nice to see he and Lance connecting. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I, I think he's got a he's got a lot to give back to the sport if, if if they allow it. If they allow it. But you know. We're lucky. We're lucky, you know, and we you know, there's we're missing some individuals. Frank Vanderbrook, Marco Pantani, uh Jimenez from Spain, you know, they're not around anymore. So you know, it's tough when you got you know, when you make a wrong choice like we did, and then the road can be really rough, you know, especially if you don't have the right support system. So yeah, I feel very lucky, very lucky, very grateful. Obviously, incredible, incredibly, you know, sorry for the mistakes I made and, and all that. But yeah, I've had to move on. I've had to like forgive myself for, for it all and just move on. Forget, forget everyone. Yeah, yeah. Just move on. Yeah, I mean, life's a lot better when you when you forgive. Don't you? And but not not to forget, right? These are serious things. So I, you know, I I'm always happy to share share stories, and I do try to talk to the young kids a lot about you know, how things can go wrong if, if if you kind of leave that window open. Well, I think they can go wrong in any, because a lot of people are listening to this podcast, Tyler, and they're like, okay, I'm not a pro cyclist. I'm never going to be faced with this ethical dilemma. Well, it, it's no different than fudging your sales numbers. It's no different than, you know, filing a fraudulent tax report. Once you step across the line a little bit, there's no a little bit. You're across the line or you're not across the line. And once you step across that line, it becomes easier to justify any other contact conduct on the far side of that line now. One bad decision could snowball into multiple bad decisions. Yeah. Yeah, some great lessons uh, lessons learned just for, for life, you know. Yeah, you can, you can, yeah, put what we went through in, in so many different aspects of life and, and kind of compare it, yeah. And if you start going down that road, the wrong road, like it's not too late to stop and, and, and do the right thing. You know, I wish I'd made, made that choice, you know, even a year or two down the road, which kind of at that point seemed like I was so far down the road, but really I wasn't, you know, I could have, but I, I didn't, you know, I guess, the, you know, my defense might be, yeah, the sport wasn't very condoning to go clean, I guess at that time, let's just put it that way. But yeah, I mean, I, I did, I, I knew, I knew what I was doing was wrong. That's why it dug, it dug at me for a long time. Yeah. Tyler, thanks for chatting. Let's catch up again soon. Yeah, hey, good to see you, man. Fist bump. Boom. So if you like this video, you should definitely check out this video because I know you're going to love it. And don't forget to subscribe to the channel.